Edutech XP, a new podcast from the students at the University of Thailand, which explores the field of educational technology. We're looking forward to taking a close look at how the science of learning has evolved over time, current research endeavors, and how educational technology is being put into practice around the world. In our bi-monthly episodes, our hosts will speak to experts in the fields about their experiences as instructional designers, teachers, students, education, and computer scientists. On today's introductory episode, our student host, Ellen, will be speaking with Professor Armin Weinberger, head of the Department of Educational Technology here at the University of Ceylon. Professor Weinberger is a leading figure in the field of computer-supported collaborative learning and argumentative knowledge building. Most recently, he has co-authored a book together with Professor Helmut Niegermann, Handbook Bildungstechnologie, Konzeption und Einsatz der Digitale Lernumgebung, or Handbook Educational Technology, Conception and Application of Digital Learning Environments. Thank you for joining us as we explore and discuss how technology impacts the ways in which we learn and teach. Now let's get started. Today for our introductory episode, we are going to talk to Professor Armin Weinberger. Thank you so much for being here and joining us for our introductory episode for this podcast. Thank you for having me. Can't wait to be a part of this. <laughs> That's very good. Um, so why don't you start and tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself? Could you describe your biography in less than 10 words to us? Less than 10 words. That's a real challenge. <laughs> Happy accidents, concerted efforts, um, identified mission, transactive self-awareness. Wow. And higher goals. Yeah, but that's my biography. But I'm not sure if that does justice to anything or if you know what that means, but that kind of describes my academic career. And I was basically starting in Munich at the department of Professor Mandel, who is my PhD supervisor at the time, which in German it's called Doctor Vater or Doctor Father. And yeah, I got into studying in Munich, which was a happy accident because basically I wanted to go to a different place. I wasn't really aware of where to study what. And so I came to Munich basically because I was following my girlfriend at the time because she was studying in Munich. So I thought, yeah, okay, then let's go to Munich. And it was a happy accident because there I was getting to know constructivistic ideas at that time. And I saw a book lying around. There was another student in the department and he was on Watzlawick, which is like popular constructivism for you. And I thought, oh, this is excellent. I'm in the right place. So, so you uh, didn't want to study or get into the field of education and technology right from the start. It sort of happened to you. No, no, I did. I did want to study education. That didn't happen. But what did happen was to study in Munich at that particular department. That was a happy accident because that was better than my second choice at that time. So that was also in the direction of my way of thinking and learning about constructivistic ideas. So that was a happy accident. And then I basically, you know, I guess it was the late 90s when I was taking part in what was then called a virtual seminar, which was conducted in that department. And then it was very soon afterwards that I kind of shifted my roles and, and got into teaching as well. I was still a student assistant at the time, I believe, but then we, we were really fascinated by online learning, which was all brand new at the time. And it, <laughs> now it's kind of like a standard, but at that time, I mean, only like a little bit more than 25 years ago, it was really, it was really very interesting. What does technology do to our communication and to how we learn and so on? And how can we set up and facilitate 
learning online. It was absolutely amazing. So I set it up a virtual seminar with a colleague and we found that, first of all, it was lots of work. It was not as convenient as we would have thought that, oh, this is now becoming much easier. It was lots of work, both for us, the moderators, as well as for the participants. It was a very intensive experience. And what I found then afterwards was that the sample of students taking part in it was a little bit different from the typical face-to-face -face university. There were people who couldn't easily come to university because they were in another city working already and basically needing some courses to do then a PhD. There was one very small subsection, but a large part of that sample was single mothers. And so that was very appreciated by them. And that was fascinating to me to say, hey, this is an interesting phenomenon that you could maybe, you know, lower the threshold for certain substrata of students. And the funny thing is that we've just now ended a project, which was called the Competency Project, because it's Competency with SEA, standing for Southeast Asia, where we partnered with colleagues uh, from Southeast Asia to create MOOCs, uh, online learning, mm -hmm. for disadvantaged groups of students. Right. So it's very funny to see that like around about 20 years, it has become full circle. And, exactly. and to me, that is very rewarding. So to identify the mission, let's say it's rewarding. Yeah, That's one aspect of it. You just mentioned those higher missions. So that's one of them. Yeah, that's one of them, actually. Yeah, indeed. I mean, that needs to be problematized, of course, because we know this promise of closing the gap of making education more accessible. You know, this is a worthwhile mission for sure. That's why I'm fascinated by it, because basically we're up to save the world by doing that. Yeah? <laughs> But we know, and that needs to be problemized, we know that that's not so easy and that technology in and of itself is definitely not enough to close that gap. On the contrary, there is a high risk that technology contributes to increasing the gap to some extent. So this has been happening with television in the 70s. There was a notion, oh, television, fantastic. Now we can create excellent courses. We have excellent teachers. We explain it really well. We have the best material and we broadcast it. And that's reaching out to all strata of the population and, and we can reach the rooms of children and also those disadvantaged children would have the best education possible. And what has been found then already was, of course, that those who have benefits, those who are rich in learning prerequisites would benefit much better from this uh, educational technology than those who are disadvantaged. And of course, the same is true also to some extent for online learning, computer-supported learning. So there have been, of course, this, this notion of MOOCs, and that's why we did this project in the first place. These MOOCs um, reaching, you know, 120,000 students worldwide, mm -hmm. and then the best students taking part in these MOOCs are not the ones in Harvard and in Berkeley or whatnot, but are in Afghanistan and so on. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, of course, fantastic. But there is a but, namely, of course, the people participating from Afghanistan, Pakistan, you name it, are, of course, among the elite in these respective society. So it's not easy. Yeah? It remains difficult and needs to, be, needs to be designed, especially for disadvantaged groups of learners. And that's what we did there. So it's possible, but it needs an extra effort. It's not just, ah, oh, here we have the technology, let's do this, and then uh, all problems are solved. It's not so easy. And copy-paste the, the off-screen education pretty much into technology. It's not going to work that easily. Right. 
That's right. That's right. Let's move on to what educational technology is all about. I mean, you've been working in the field for quite some time, and I'm sure you've had to tell a lot of people what it is in, in maybe a few simple sentences. What I like most about educational technology is that it providing you with approaches and with knowledge, scientific knowledge about how to do things. It's application oriented or practice related in that sense. So that's very interesting to me, not only if a theory is consistent, but also if a theory provides you with some magic power to make decisions in practice. And that's what education technology does for you, actually. It's the science of application of educational knowledge. That's what the technology means. It's a kind of like the application of knowledge, which is a bit weird, because if you think about technology, of course, you're thinking about computers. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Yeah. It's not the science of computers, actually. It's not the, you know, that's a different discipline altogether. And it's just so that we are very interested and fascinated by the particular computer technology. And we just recognize that computers are basically the information and communication technology of our time. And communication and information just simply is fundamental part of education because you need to inform, uh, you need to convey information and you need to, because learning is a social act, at least in my perspective, and that's also the part that I'm most fascinated with too, you need to communicate. Uh, learning is a social activity. And so it is very fundamental to what we're doing, but it is basically not within the definition of education technology. It's just so that we're saying, okay, as we are to 99% invested and using computer technology, we think it does make sense to not only talk about theories of learning and instruction, but also to look into what computer technology is out there and how to deal with it. So that's why the study program of educational technology is actually that we built in Saarland University. Uh, University is actually also yeah, building a bridge to the computer science department. Right, right. So the term technology in the sense is twofold, but both parts are really important um, to the whole concept. Yeah, right. It's just, of course, the, the thing is how to, to manage the expectations here, because of course, no need to tell you that if you're an educational technologist, if the technology and in common understanding of technology is not working, yeah, like your computer is breaking down when you're presenting something or your uh, video projector is breaking down, then it's all, haha, you don't know about technology. But it's not that technology that we're talking about. It's not, we're not teaching students to which button to press or which software is out there. Why? Because the technology will change so rapidly and you would still have need to have a principled understanding of education and then an understanding of designing with the tools that are at your hands. And basically I'm expecting or I'm already seeing that the programming skills are very important. It's a magic capability of being able to program. Okay. You said we don't have to teach students how to push a button because it's going to change anyway. But do we have to teach teachers how to program these things? Or like we as educational technologists and instructional designers, are we sort of doing it for them? Or Basically, the trend is to co-design. So indeed, I think it would be advisable to expand the understanding of what teaching is and of what a teacher does 
to becoming a designer of learning environments, of learning experiences. So, and you have to see that there are uh, now frameworks available that don't require you to be a program anymore, and you can still design and create entire learning environments. This is a way forward, basically, and, and therefore, maybe also the software side of things needs to consider to develop tools for creating learning experiences rather than to creating a complete uh, one-size-fits-all uh, kind of learning environment that you just put in front of teachers and students. The idea is moving to co-design and I would hope for teachers to understand their profession also as a profession of design just as much as I hope that our students of educational technology understand that they are actually becoming designers. Right. Um, do you think this sort of design approach, that's just a side question though, do you think this design approach should be included in teacher training already? I would think so. At least there should be a perspective of that. I mean, basically, uh, there, it is already also included. Yeah? So teachers are being taught to make lesson plans and such. And it's now a question of, you know, expanding the, the playing field, the playground, because the lesson plans uh, need maybe need to take more into account the capabilities of computer technology as well and saying, okay, so now how can I use computers and digitalization basically to transform my teaching to some extent? Or how can I not only translate it, but how can I do things easier or in, a, in leaner fashions and in a more up-to-date fashion? basically. Yeah. Right. When I think back to my school time, I think uh, teachers were, weren't were using much electronics. In, I mean, technology in the sense of electronics. And I mean, it is a part of education technology, as you said, and it's not just lesson plans. And I think it wasn't just because it wasn't there, but also because the everyday school just doesn't really have time to invest much in designing a, a big education experience because they also, they have to to meet quota and all of this. So how can instructional designers help with that, I guess? I mean, they can design really fancy applications that would be super cool and really um, get your learning achievements and goals going, but it has to be applicable. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the lack of time is, of course, a killer argument. Always has been, will always be for anything and any change, huh? because basically... If you implement any kind of change, it also comes together with a kind of momentary reduction of performance. When you switch from pen and paper to typing on a keyboard, you will actually be for some time a little bit slower than if you would use a pen. But then in the long run, and rather quickly, actually, it pays off. And quite a lot of this technology is basically meant to serve you and to save time. There are some, some technologies that I would say okay, are ready to implement now if you think about, I don't know, uh, tools for peer assessment, for instance. So I'd say, okay, I can, I can basically handle groups of people reviewing each other and technology helps me to do this in an instance without me running from table to table, let's say. So there are really quite a few examples in how technology is very quickly starting to save your time. And I would say 
we have to be very careful to not do two things. One thing is to disregard this argument of, hey, I cannot do this. There's too much on my shoulders already because that's very much the reality of teachers. I, I believe that. But we can also not disregard or not start to change things just because it will take time. It will, everything takes a little bit of time and to fulfill the curriculum can't be the only you know, argument against revising, improving your teaching. We have to understand that improving, that teaching is an optimization task. I'm still trying to <laughs> do my teaching better every year. And from course to course, I'm trying to think, okay, what did work, what did not work last time? Of course, students also are different. But basically, there is a notion, and we're doing that in the department also to try and, and reflect and improve our teaching. So it's an optimization task, and you need it. You need it to invest a little bit of your time to work on the quality of your teaching. And technology is helping or can help quite a bit in it. Do you think the pandemic has in this sense been quite well, helpful in a way, because I mean, it has been a steep learning curve for a lot of people because suddenly they had to use technology. Um, there was no slow getting used to it. It had to be, had to work somehow. But um, I mean, maybe they also now see a little bit quicker the um, advantages of all of this. Absolutely. I'm always like to think of three steps that needed to be taken or three, you know, uh, what you call it, steps on a, on a staircase. So the first step is, and that's where we have been before the pandemic, I would say, is to regard the dangers of new media and of, of consume, of uh, consumption of media and information and for young children of, say, how that would maybe distract them, how it costs so much time that is unproductive and so on and to make learners aware of being critical with fake news etc how to deal with the internet as it is omnipresent as it is ubiquitous right yeah. so that was the first step and that is kind of like watch out kids there's uh, there's danger out there and something wicked this way comes and please you know take care be critical and don't overuse it and so on that's the first step and and schools try to make people aware The second step is what happened in the pandemic, I would say, is to say, oh, there are tools out there. You can do online teaching. Uh, you can use these tools that are more or less off the shelf. There are platforms like this. We're now also using Zoom, for instance, uh, and there are others like MS Teams, etc., cetera, uh, to be used. So that's kind of like that pandemic pushed us there. It's maybe cynic to say, but that's just a matter of fact that uh, this is the heyday, uh, if we want or not, of mm -hmm. online communication and online learning, of course. So that was quite interesting just because there was a necessity of, okay, now I need to teach online. Oh, and this actually works somehow. There's still people saying, oh, this is a big difference and it's not real. Yeah, Our talk now is not real. It's something else. I don't know what it is. To me, it is very real, but people are saying, ah, it's not true communication. So that's a bit funny to me because what is then the definition of true communication? But of course, there's also a notion of there is something happening when you're face to face. There's an additional level or additional kind of sense of embodiment that when you are in the same room yeah, and also commitment, we understand that. That's, that's very interesting to investigate. And now the third level, of course, would be what I just said, this notion of co-design to say, okay, you're not only consuming software or online uh, learning and teaching uh, for off the shelf and, and using what is available, but now you're becoming more active, you're creating learning experience and you can play with what the platform is offering. You can intentionally design for 
different learning experience and what you regard as important, not what necessarily someone else does or instructional designers or software developers think is important, but what you as a teacher thinks is important, what you want to have in your classroom. So that's the next level. And we're still we're in still in the intermediate level. So I'm pushing for this next step, basically. Right. And maybe they also happen simultaneously in a way. Not the whole world changes at once, I think. Right. Yeah, it's a simplification to think of one, two, three. But you know, for the purpose of um, you know, the way of thinking, then yes. Speaking of one, two, three, I have three statements here, which are Technology improves teaching, technology adapts teaching, and technology alters teaching. And I mean technology in a sense of electronics and the, the common use of the word. Which of these three segments would you most agree with? You can use technology in a way that does not improve uh, of course. learning. Yeah? <laughs> so let's say to be on the safe side, I would say it alters the way we learn. And even that is not always correct as well, because there's technology that can be used in a way that it perpetuates very much current practices. So you can, and people do, create the classroom online. Right. There's a notion of, oh, yeah, this is the format. I'm familiar with it. That yes. is basically, and that's the funny thing, is that the people who are designing these uh, teaching, learning software, they're really... There is no reflection about what learning is other than what has been experienced on a broad level. So there is a notion of learning equals the classroom. That is what learning is. There is no alternative to that. That's why I'm telling my students first time I meet them, guys, what I want to challenge you with is to think learning anew. So try and come up with other things than, oh, yeah, I know, learning. That's what's happening in schools. Exactly. No, 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 no. So it alters. What was the third option? Maybe I should go for the third option. Adapts. That's the fuzziest one or vaguest <laughs> one. Maybe that's the better one then. <laughs> yeah, I mean, adapts. I think it fits it to the new possibilities we have. That's what I think adapts would go for and would mean. We have technology, we have new circumstances. And learning itself doesn't change. It's still the acquisition of knowledge. But the way how we, as you said, the way how we do it, this changes and can change. And we have to rethink that. I love what you just said. And then I would really, you won me over. I'm going for adapting. Yeah? <laughs> <laughs> it's a wonderful way to put it. You're great. Right. What area in current edutech research are you most curious about? I'm still such a bugger for this uh, C part of it, the communication part, the computer support collaborative learning part in a sense. And even though my paradigm has expanded a little bit towards networked learning and orchestrated forms of learning, because it's one thing to investigate collaborative learning, but it's another thing to think of collaborative learning as one arrangement that kind of is orchestrated with other arrangements as well. So orchestration and network learning has become a little bit my paradigm to see, okay, not only what happens within one arrangements, but how does it connect and how can we create synergies with other learning arrangements? Because it's very simple, really. I mean, if you're thinking about, let's say, learning a language, you need to learn vocabulary. And basically, that's learning by heart. There is no way around this. You, you basically have to learn words by heart. What is the best way to do that? And the best way to do that is the Leitner system. That is that system with where you have these Philofax cards and you basically, you know, you're testing yourself constantly. And that has been found to be the most efficient use of individual learning time. 
right? And the most important part here is that you're doing this, um, you know, learning with these file cards in a spread out manner on three to five different days. You know, one set of cards, you right. repeat it three or to five times on three to five different days. That's very important. And if you're doing that, you've learned it. You like, it's the best way, really. That's only the words. That's just the words. There are other learning goals as well, like the grammar. And the grammar is kind of, what does that even mean? And it's hard to learn from a textbook and trying to understand it to some extent, at least when you the first time language learner. Yeah? So what you need is a teacher that explains it to you to foster your understanding. And the best thing to do is direct instruction. That's as simple as that. It's direct instruction, very sequenced kind of form. I mean, there is direct instruction, there is direct instruction. It's not classroom teaching. It's direct instruction. It's a particular approach with several phases that are sequenced and are iterated and so on. But then there is even more than that to language learning. And just talking about language learning now. And that if you speak, you are actually solving little problems. I want to express something. Uh, how do I do that? And that's complex. And the combination of grammar and words is not enough. It's just not enough. So you, you can learn everything by heart and you're in Paris and you don't know how uh, a word of French or you don't know how to, you know a word of French, but you don't know how to say something because you haven't learned to put things together. And that often happens in, in some countries where there's a large focus on road learning, where these things don't happen in application-oriented manner. So I'm most interested in learning arrangements in which you have to elaborate, in which you have to find things out yourself, in which you have to solve little problems. And that very often comes together with a learning that is guided by dialogue, by collaboration, by argumentation also. So that is a bit my paradigm in terms of how I want how I want my own teaching to be understood and also what I'm interested to investigate. And I'm hoping and I'm trying to establish a culture of dialogue and argumentation within the edutech classroom as much as I also investigate that. I see that students coming from all over the world who may or may not be used to also discuss things are getting in the habit of discussing things, of looking at things, of complex things, of course, from different angles and perspectives and of in doing so, also solving these little problems of making decisions and of expressing themselves and so on. Very good. That's, I think these sort of communication practices are a valid skill we need these days. Of what's actually going on and what actually academia is about. But I would thinking hard about how can we hardwire that to our respective courses. That's difficult. I bet it is. As a professor, you're, of course, working hands-on in higher education, but I think our department also has some projects currently, not only looking at higher education, but also fundamental education. I think the Piaf research group is working on that. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yes, Piaf is a project with Luxembourg, Belgium and French partners. We are interested in computational thinking and we are basically developing a framework and pedagogical scenarios and tools to implement learning experiences for computational thinking in the elementary school. 
So that is what is happening. And we're basically already coming to a close here, but it's out of, I don't know what reason, or there is no particular reason, but it aligns with interest of us to investigate uh, elementary school situations. Mm -hmm. We have done a couple of studies now um, that uh, address not adult learners, students mainly, which I have done mostly for, for the last uh, few years. But yeah, in, in more recent years, we have uh, investigated elementary school children and facilitating their learning. And now in the PF project, it's uh, about facilitating computational thinking. So we have created a couple of scenarios also involving students here. And uh, we are currently in the phase of revising them with the feedback from the partners who also have different disciplinary backgrounds, including computer science, so that we have a good understanding of, of what the competency of computational thinking actually is and then to have a good understanding of how that can be facilitated in the elementary school. Right. That sounds very interesting. And I think for our listeners out there, we are going to talk about this in another episode and go a bit deeper into the content. Another thing that's happening is OpenTeach. Um, that's sort of a platform that's looking at providing teachers and educators learning content and sharing it. Am I correct? Yes, to some extent, yes, it's about open educational resources. And OER is just so fascinating because in this time of digitalization and facilitating this transformation, OER play a major role. Because OER are for free. It's very good. <laughs> you know, if you're thinking about how can we pay for all this? You don't yeah. have to pay anything. It's for free. And OER are legally okay. So they are free to use. You're fine, uh, legally fine to use it, which is always a concern for teachers because you don't want to, you know, pay fines or go to prison just because you violated any kind of copyrights or anything like that. OER do not have that problem. They are fine to use. And because they are very, how to say, varied in what they are. And they are adaptable to a large extent. So you can think about OERs in terms of texts, and that includes, of course, school books as well, and in terms of graphics or multimedia messages of any sorts, videos and such. You can think of OER as tests, questions, uh, and teachers have to, of course, devise tests to assess the performance of the students. So that is very useful and practical to have some kind of inspiration for how a test could look like. But most importantly or interestingly, you can now think of OER as free-to-use software for teaching. For instance, simulations. You would be able to create something like a virtual laboratory in any kind of discipline, really, to have learners have some practice or application-related experiences in these kind of, yeah, for instance, simulations that you couldn't have from a school book, from a textbook, that you couldn't have in the normal classroom, that you may sometimes have in school laboratories or uh, in any kind of other learning laboratory. But other than that, it's kind of not attainable. And OER do have that. They are free. There are many. It's more a question of finding them and finding the good ones, the ones that are basically, you know, according to what it is that you want, align with your criteria. And that is what Open Teach is about. The project is basically building up an environment and a community that evaluates and identifies the most interesting OERs. So we are not creating learning content. We are rather building a hub, a meta platform for finding 
the OERs. We want to be a little bit like Amazon for OER, except that we're having no commercial interests and we won't be getting rich. <laughs> I promise you one thing, we won't be getting rich. We're doing it <laughs> for other purposes. <laughs> Very altruistic. <laughs> well. <laughs> <laughs> Saving the world, that's what it's... Saving the world, yeah. Of yeah, of course. Things cost money. So if you had a budget of 50,000 euros, what would you invest it in of all the things we talked about? In a PhD student. They would be creating a PhD position and then I would try and talk with a PhD student and trying to identify what would be the sweet spot where our interests overlap and can we create a scientific work on topic X. Because you have to understand that there are groups and people and organizations that create something that they sell and commercialize basically and there's nothing wrong with that. And university is mainly about creating knowledge, yeah, scientific knowledge. That's, that's our task. That's the reason why society thinks that universities are a good idea. <laughs> and so that's what I would do. Yeah? I would try and create scientific knowledge on a specific topic that we need to identify. Investing in a person. I like that idea. I like that thought. All right. To close it all off, do you have a favorite quote about educational technology? The go-to guy for quotes, really, in any, you know, <laughs> is Mark Twain. I have lots of quotes from Mark Twain. I think he's the master of quotes. And what did he say? For instance, he said, I never let schooling get in the way of my education. <laughs> oh, I like that. <laughs> it's very well. This is um, it's fantastic. I mean, maybe a bit skeptical about schooling. In the end, we're also kind of an institution, but I do underline, and it's also part of the interest of orchestrating learning arrangements, of collaborative or social forms of learning, is to look to informal learning scenarios. Yeah? You're learning a lot, but not only or to a lesser part, maybe in schools. You will also, at some point, probably very soon after a test, forget about what you have learned. Oh, you yeah. need to still have an understanding of what a theory is and what knowledge is and what evidence is and so on that you need to know you need to understand not to know it's not something you learn by heart but you need to understand that and in the case of cases need to go back to that yeah. but you won't be able to say when was that publication who wrote that and what is the concept what was the name of the you will look it up you will be able to look it up but you needed to be set up for life in a way of hopefully appreciate, uh, you know, valuing scientific knowledge. That would be awesome. And that's difficult to attain because university is hard. It's difficult. And people are very often are saying, oh my God, I'm so glad it's over. <laughs> that would be, that's, I understand that. But I'm hoping for society's sake and also a little bit of our own sake and of science and that there is a continued appreciation of universities and of science. We're trying not to be evil and we hope there is something coming back in terms of we had a good time and there was not everything was difficult or not everything was bad, but there is a point why university should exist. And if it was only for the children coming, <laughs> following, <laughs> then you would be interested in good universities, I hope. I think you definitely would. I think this closes it for today. And this has been Professor Armin Weinberger, Head of the Educational Technology Department at Saarland University. Thank you so much again for being here. And we were very happy to have you. Thank you so much. That was a blast. I enjoyed it. Thank you so much. I could talk on for hours. I'm sorry, I probably did talk on for hours. So We're perfectly in time. And I think we're going to have you on again 
probably soon. I think that would be grand. Please, seriously, I'm happy. I'm happy to. I would do this instantly. So it was it was a pleasure. We hope you enjoyed the episode and will join us again in two weeks when we talk to Arival Humphrey Ogunfuzika about e-learning in the post-pandemic world. You can find us on Instagram at edutechxp, follow us on Facebook or LinkedIn, and most importantly, you can listen and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. We are on Spotify, Audible, Google, Apple and Amazon Podcasts, Anchor, Deezer and Pocket Casts. Until next time. Thank you.